Chapter forty four of St. George and St. Michael, Volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. St. George and St. Michael, Volume three, by George MacDonald. The King some months before the battle of naseby which was fought in june early that is in the year sixteen forty five the plans of the king having now ripened he gave a secret commission for ireland to the earl of glamorgan with immense powers among the rest that of coining money in order that he might be in a position to make proposals towards certain arrangements with the irish catholics which in view of the prejudices of the king's protestant council it was of vital importance to keep secret glamorgan therefore took a long leave of his wife and family and in the month of march set out for dublin at carnarvon they got on board a small bark laden with corn but in rough weather that followed were cast ashore on the coast of lancashire a second attempt failed also for pursued by a parliament vessel they were again compelled to land on the same coast it was the middle of summer before they reached Dublin. During this period there was, of course, great anxiety in Raglan, the chief part of which was Lady Glamorgan's. At times she felt that, but for the sympathy of Dorothy, often silent but always ministrant, she would have broken down quite under the burden of ignorance and its attendant anxiety. In the prolonged absence of her husband, and the irregularity of tidings, for they came at uncertain as well as wide intervals, her yearnings after her vanished Molly, which had become more patient, returned with all their early vehemence, and she began to brood on the meeting beyond the grave of which her religion waked her hope. Nor was this all. Her religion itself grew more real, for although there is nothing essentially religious in thinking of the future, although there is more of the heart of religion in the taking of strength from the love of God to do the commonest duty, than in all the longing for a blessed hereafter of which the soul is capable, yet the love of a little child is very close to the love of the great father and the loss that sets any affection aching and longing heaves as on a wave from the very heart of the human ocean the laboring spirit up towards the source of life and restoration in like manner from their common love to the child and their common sense of loss in her death the hearts of the two women drew closer to each other and protestant mistress dorothy was able to speak words of comfort catholic lady glamorgan which the hearer found would lie on the shelf of her creed none the less quietly that the giver had lifted them from the shelf of hers one evening while yet lady glamorgan had had no news of her husband's arrival in ireland and the bright june weather continued clouded with uncertainty and fear lady broughton came panting into her parlour with the tidings that a courier had just arrived at the main entrance himself pale with fatigue and his horse white with foam alas alas cried lady glamorgan and fell back in her chair faint with apprehension for what might not be the message he bore ere dorothy had succeeded in calming her the marquis himself came hobbling in with the news that the king was coming is that all said the countess heaving a deep sigh while the tears ran down her cheeks is that all repeated her father-in-law how my lady is there then nobody in all the world but glamorgan verily i believe thou wouldst turn thy back on the angel gabriel 
if he dared appear before thee without thy Ned under his arm. Bless the Irish heart! I never gave thee my Ned, that thou shouldst fall down and worship the fellow. Bear with me, sir, she answered faintly. It is but the pain here. Thou knowest I cannot tell, but he lieth at the bottom of the Irish sea. If he do lie there, then lieth he in Abraham's bosom, daughter, where I trust there is room for thee and me also. Thou rememberest how thy Molly said once to be, Madam, thy bosom is not so big as my lord Abraham's. What a big bosom my lord Abraham must have! Lady Glamorgan laughed. Come then, to our work alive, which is now to receive his majesty, said the Marquis, my wild Irishwoman. Alas, my lord, tame enough now, sighed the countess not too tame to understand that she must represent her husband before the king's majesty said lord worcester lady clemorgan rose kissed her father-in-law wiped her eyes and said where my lord do you propose lodging his majesty in the great north room over the buttery and next the picture gallery which will serve his majesty to walk in and the windows there have the finest prospect of all i did think of the great tower but well the chamber there is indeed statelier but it is gloomy as a dull twilight while the one i intend him to lie in is bright as a summer morning the tower chamber makes me think of all the lords and ladies that have died therein the north room of all the babies that have been born there spoken like a man murmured lady glamorgan have you given directions my lord i have sent for sir ralph Come with me, Margaret. You and Mary must keep your old father from blundering. Run, Dorothy, and tell Mr. Delaware and Mr. Andrews that I desire their presence in my closet. I miss the rogue Scudamore. They tell me he hath done well, and is sorely wounded. He must feel the better for the one already, and I hope he will soon be nothing the worse for the other. As he thus talked, they left the room and took their way to the study, where they found the steward waiting them. The whole castle was presently alive with preparations for the king's visit. That he had been so sorely foiled of late only roused in all the greater desire to receive him with every possible honor. Hope revived in Lady Glamorgan's bosom. She would take the coming of the king as a good omen for the return of her husband. Dorothy ran to do the Marquis's pleasure. As she ran, it seemed as if some new spring of life had burst forth in her heart. The king! the king actually coming the god-chosen monarch of england the head of the church the type of omnipotence the wrong the saintly the wise he who fought with bleeding heart for the rights that he might fulfil the duties to which he was born she would see him she would breathe the same air with him gaze on his gracious countenance unseen until she had imprinted every feature of his divine face upon her heart and memory the thought was too entrancing. She wept as she ran to find the master of the horse and the master of the fish ponds. At length, on the evening of the third of July, a pursuivant, accompanied by an advanced guard of horsemen, announced the king, and presently on the north road appeared the dust of his approach. Nearer they came, all on horseback, a court of officers, travel stained and weary, with foam flecked horses, but flowing plumes flashing armor, and ringing chains, they arrived at the brick gate, where Lord Charles himself threw the two leaves open to admit them, 
and bent the knee before his king as they entered the marble gate they saw the marquis descending the great white stair to meet them leaning for his lameness on the arm of his brother sir thomas of troy and followed by all the ladies and gentlemen and officers in the castle who stood on the stair while he approached the king's horse bent his knee kissed the royal hand and rising with difficulty for the gout had aged him beyond his years said domini non som dignus i would i had not to give this brief dialogue but it stands on record and may suggest something worth thinking to him who can read it aright the king replied my lord i may very well answer you again i have not found so great faith in israel for no man would trust me with so much money as you have done i hope your majesty will prove a defender of the faith returned the marquis the king then dismounted ascended the marble steps with his host nearly as stiff as he from his long ride crossed the moat on the undulating drawbridge passed the echoing gateway and entered the stone court the marquis turned to the king and presented the keys of the castle the king took them and returned them i pray your majesty keep them in so good a hand i fear that ere it be long i shall be forced to deliver them into the hands of who will spoil the compliment said the marquis nay rejoined his majesty but keep them till the king of kings demand the account of your stewardship my lord i trust your majesty's name will then be seen where it stands therein said the marquis for so it will fare the better with the steward in the court the garrison horse and foot a goodly show was drawn up to receive him with an open lane through leading to the northwestern angle where was the stair to the king's apartment at the draw-well which lay right in the way and around which the men stood off in a circle the king stopped laid his hand on the wheel and said gaily my lord is this your lordship's purse for your majesty's sake i would it were returned the marquis at the foot of the stair on plea of his gout he delivered his majesty to the care of lord charles sir ralph blackstone and mr delaware who conducted him to his chamber the king supped alone but after supper lady glamorgan and the other ladies of the family having requested permission to wait upon him were ushered into his presence each of them took with her one of her ladies in attendance and dorothy being the one chosen by her mistress for that honour not without the rousing of a strong feeling of injustice in the bosoms of the elder ladies entered trembling behind her mistress as if the room were a temple wherein no simulacrum but the divinity himself dwelt in visible presence his majesty received them courteously said kind things to several of them but spoke and behaved at first with a certain long-faced reserve rather than dignity which while it jarred a little with dorothy's ideal of the graciousness that should be mingled with majesty in the perfect monarch yet operated only to throw her spirit back into that stage of devotion wherein to use a figure of the king's own the awe overlays the love a little later the marquis entered walking slowly leaning on the arm of lord charles but carrying in his own hands a present of apricots from his brother to the king meantime dorothy's love had begun to rise again from beneath her awe but when the marquis came in old and stately reverend and slow with a silver dish in each hand and a basket on his arm 
and she saw him bow three times ere he presented his offering, himself serving whom all served, himself humble whom all revered, then again did all nearly overcome her. When the king, however, having graciously received the present, chose for each of the ladies one of the apricots, and coming to Dorothy last, picked out and offered the one he said was likeliest the bloom of her own fair cheek, gratitude again restored the sway of love, and in the greatness of the honor she almost let slip the compliment. She could not reply, but she looked her thanks, and the king doubtless missed nothing. The next day his majesty rested, but on following days rode to Monmouth, Chepstow, Usk, and other towns in the neighborhood, whose loyalty, thanks to the Marquis, had as yet stood out. After dinner he generally paid the Marquis a visit in the oak parlor, then perhaps had a walk in the grounds, or a game on the bowling green. But although the Marquis was devoted to the king's cause, he was not therefore either blinded or indifferent to the king's faults, and as an old man who had long been trying to grow better, he made up his mind to risk a respectful word in the matter of kingly obligation. One day, therefore, when his majesty entered the oak parlor, he found his host sitting by the table with his gower lying open before him, as if he had been reading, which doubtless was the case. "'What book have you there, my lord?' asked the king, while some of his courtiers stood near the door, and others gazed from the window on the moat and the swelling, towering mass of the keep. "'I like to know what books my friends read.' "'Sir, it is old Master John Gower's book of verses, entitled Confessio Amantis,' answered his lordship. "'It is a book I have never seen before,' said the king, glancing at its pages. "'Oh,' returned the Marquis, "'it is a book of books, which if your majesty had been well versed in, it would have made you a king of kings.' "'Why so, my lord?' asked the king." Why, said the Marquis, here is set down how Aristotle brought up and instructed Alexander the Great in all his rudiments, and the principles belonging to a prince. Allow me, sir, to read you such a passage as will show your majesty the truth of what I say. He opened the book and read, Among the virtues one is Shafay, and that is Tretha, which is Lefay, dear, to God and eat to man also and for it hath been ever so, taught Aristotle, as he well could, knew, to Alexander, how in his youth, he should have trethus Loki grace that same, with all his whole heart embrace, so that his word be true and plain, toward the world, and so certain, that in him be no double spesh. For if men should trethus sesh, and found it not within a king, it were an unfinde thing. The word is token of that within. There shall a worthy king begin to keep his tongue and to be true, so shall his price been ever new. And here, sir, is what he saith as to the significance of the kingly crown, if your majesty will allow me to read it. Read on, my lord. All is good and true, said the king. The gold betokeneth excellence that men should done him reverence, as to her liege sovereign, their liege, the stones, as the books sane, commended then in trouble wise. First, Ibn Hard, and Thilkia Sigis, that a tribute, betokeneth in a king Constance, 
so that there shall be no variance, be found in his condition, and also by description, the virtue which is in the stones, a very sign is for the knowns, of that a king shall be honest, and hold truly his behest, promise, of thing which longeth to Kennedy, belongeth, and so on, for I were loath to worry your majesty of the color of the stones and the circular form of the crown. Read on, my lord, said the king. Several passages, therefore, did the marquis pick out and read, amongst which probably were certain concerning flatterers, taking care still to speak of Alexander and Aristotle, and by no means of king and marquis, until at length he had read the king such a lesson, as Dr. Bailey informs us, that the bystanders were amazed at his boldness. "'My lord, have you got your lesson by heart, or speak you out of the book?' asked the king, taking the volume. "'Sir,' the marquis replied, "'if you could read my heart, it may be you might find it there. Or, if your majesty please to get it by heart, I will lend you my book.' "'I would willingly borrow it,' said the king. "'Nay,' said the marquis, "'I will lend it to you upon these conditions. First, that you read it, and second, that you make use of it. Here, glancing round, while knowing the nature of the soil upon which his words fell, he saw some of the new-made lords displeased, fretting and biting their thumbs, and thus therefore resumed. But, sir, I assure you that no man was so much for the absolute power of the king as Aristotle. If your majesty will allow me the book again, I will show you one remarkable passage to that purpose." Having searched the volume for a moment, and found it, he read as follows. Harpes first his tale told, and said how that the strength of kings is mightiest of all things. For king hath power over man, and man is he which reason can, as he which is of his nature the most noble creature of all though that God hath wrought. And by that skill it seemeth not, for that reason, he saith that any earthly thing may be so mighty as a king. A king may spill, a king may save, a king may make of lord a knave, and of a knave a lord also. The power of a king stands so that he the law overpasseth. What he will make lassay, he lassayeth. What he will make more, he moreth. And as a gentle falcon soareth, he fleeth, that no man him reclaimeth. But he alone all other tameth, and slant himself of law free. There, my liege, so much for Aristotle and the kinghood. But think not he taketh me with him all the way. By Our Lady, I go not so far. Lifting his head again, he saw, to his wish, that diverse new-made lords had slunk out of the room. "'My lord,' said the king, "'at this rate you will drive away all my nobility.' "'I protest unto your majesty,' the marquis replied. "'I am as new a made lord as any of them all, "'but I was never called knave or rogue so much in all my life "'as I have been since I received this last honor. "'And why should they not bear their shares?' In high good humor with his success, he told the story the same evening to Lady Glamorgan in Dorothy's presence. It gave her ground for thought. 
she wondered that the marquis should think the king required such lessening she had never dreamed that a man and his office are not only metaphysically distinct but may be morally separate things she had hitherto taken the office as the pledge for the man the show as the pledge for the reality and now therefore her notion of the king received a rude shock from his best friend the arrival of his majesty had added to her labours for now again horse must bout every day with no molly to see it and rejoice every fountain rushed heavenwards and all the air was filled with pleasant noise of waters this required the fire-engine to be kept pretty constantly at work and dorothy had to run up and down the stair of the great tower several times a day but she lingered on the top as often and as long as she might one glorious july afternoon gazing from the top of the keep she saw his majesty the marquis some of the courtiers and a mr pritchard of the neighbourhood on the bowling greens having a game together it was like looking at a toy representation of one for so far below everything was wondrously dwarfed and foreshortened but certainly it was a pretty sight the gay garments the moving figures the bowls rolling like marbles over the green carpet while the sun and the blue sky and just an air of wind enough to turn every leaf into a languidly waved fan enclosed it in loveliness and filled it with light it was like a picture from a camera obscura dropped right at the foot of the keep for the surrounding walk moat and sunk wall beyond were seen from that height but enough to keep the bowling green which came to the edge of the sunk walk twelve feet below it from appearing to cling to the foundations of the tower the circle of arches filled with shell-work and statues of roman emperors which formed the face of the escarpment of the sunk walk looked like a curiously cut fringe to the carpet while dorothy aloft was thus looking down and watching the game what a lovely prospect it is said his majesty below addressing mr pritchard while the marquis bowled making answer mr pritchard pointed out where his own house lay half hidden by a grove and said may it please your majesty i have advised my lord to cut down those trees so that when he wants a good player at bowls he may have but to beckon nay returned the king he should plant more trees that so he might not see thy house at all the marquis who had bowled and was coming towards them heard what the king said and fancying he aimed at the fault of the greedy buying up of land if your majesty hath had enough of the game he said and will climb with me to the top of the tower i will show you what may do your mind some ease i should be sorry to set your lordship such an arduous task replied the king but i am very desirous of seeing your great tower and if you will permit me i will climb the stair without your attendance sir it will pleasure me to think that the last time ever i ascended those stairs i conducted your majesty for indeed it shall be the last time i grow old as the marquis spoke he led towards the twin arch bridge over the castle moat then through the western gate and along the side of the court to the gothic bridge on their way dispatching one of his gentlemen to fetch the keys of the tower my lord said the king when the messenger had gone there are some men so unreasonable as to make me believe that your lordship hath good store of gold yet left within the tower but i knowing how i have exhausted you could never have believed it until now i see you will not trust the keys with any but yourself sir answered the marquis 
I was so far from giving your majesty any such occasion of thought by this tender of my duty, that I protest unto you that I was once resolved that your majesty should have lain there, but that I was loath to commit your majesty to the tower. You are more considerate, my lord, than some of my subjects would be if they had me as much in their keeping, answered the king sadly. But what are those pipes let into the wall up there? he asked, stopping in the middle of the bridge and looking up at the keep. "'Nay, sire, my son Edward must tell you that. "'He taketh strange liberties with the mighty old hulk. "'But I will not injure his good grace with your majesty "'by a talking of that I understand not. "'I trust that one day, when you shall no more require his absence, "'you will yet again condescend to be my guest, "'when my son, by your majesty's favour now my lord Glamorgan, "'will have things to show you that will delight your eyes to behold.' I have ere now seen something of his performance, answered the king, but these naughty times give room for nothing in that kind but guns and swords. Leaving the workshop unvisited, his lordship took the king up the stair, and unlocking the entrance to the first floor, ushered him into a lofty vaulted chamber, old in the midst of antiquity, dark, vast, and stately. This is where I did think to lodge your majesty, he said, but... But your majesty sees it is gloomy, for the windows are narrow and the walls are ten feet through. It maketh me very cold, said the king, shuddering. Good sooth, but I were loath to be a prisoner. He turned and left the room hastily. The marquis rejoined him on the stair and led him, two stories higher, to the armory, now empty compared to its former condition, but still capable of affording some supply. The next space above was filled with stores, and the highest was now kept clear for defense, for the reservoir so fully occupied the top that there was no room for engines of any sort, and indeed it took up so much of the story below with its depth that it left only such room as between the decks of a man-of-war, rendering it hardly fit for any other use. Reaching the summit at length, the king gazed with silent wonder at the little tarn which lay there as on the crest of a mountain but the marquis conducted him to the western side, and, pointing with his finger, said, Sir, you see that line of trees stretching across a neck of arable field, where to the right the brook catches the sun? I see it, my lord, answered the king. And behind it a house and garden, small but dainty? Yes, my lord. Then I trust your majesty will release me from suspicion of being of those to whom the prophet Isaiah saith, Vai qui congigitis domun domun et agrum agro copulatis usque ad terminum loci nunquae habitabitis bosoli in medio terra may it please your majesty i planted those trees to hoodwink mine eyes from such temptations hiding from them the vineyard of naboth lest they should act the jezebel and tempt me to play the ahab thereto if I did thus when those trees and I were young, shall I do worse now that I stand with one foot in the grave and purgatory itself in the other? The king seemed to listen politely, but only listened half and did not perceive his drift. He was looking at Dorothy, where she stood at the opposite side of the reservoir, unable, because of the temporary obstruction occasioned by certain alterations and repairs about the cocks now going on, to reach the stair without passing the king and the marquis. The king asked who she was, and the marquis, telling him a little about her, 
called her. She came, curtsied low to his majesty, and stood with beating heart. "'I desire,' said the Marquis, "'thou shouldst explain to his majesty that trick of thy cousin Glamorgan, the water-shoot, and let him see it work.' "'My lord,' answered Dorothy, trembling betwixt devotion and doubtful duty, "'it was the great desire of my lord Glamorgan that none in the castle should know the trick, as it pleases your lordship to call it.' "'What, cousin? Cannot his majesty keep a secret?' And doth not all that Glamorgan hath belong to the king? God forbid I should doubt either, my lord, answered Dorothy, turning very pale and ready to sink. But it cannot well be done in the broad day without someone seeing. At night, indeed. Tut, tut, it is but a whim of Glamorgan's. Thou wilt not do a jot of ill to show the game before his majesty in the sunlight. My lord, I promised. Here standeth who will absolve thee, child. His majesty is paramount to Glamorgan. My lord, my lord, said Dorothy, almost weeping, I am bewildered and cannot well understand, but I am sure that if it be wrong, no one can give me leave to do it, or absolve me beforehand. God himself can but pardon after the thing is done, not give permission to do it. Forgive me, sir, but so Master Matthew Herbert hath taught me. "'And very good doctrine, too,' said the Marquis emphatically. "'Let who will propound it. "'Thank you not, sir?' "'But the king stood with dull imperturbable gaze "'fixed on the distant horizon, and made no reply. "'An awkward silence followed. "'The king requested his host to conduct him to his apartment. "'I marvel, my lord,' said his majesty as they went down the stair, "'seeing how lame his host was, "'that, as they tell me, your lordship drinks claret. All physicians say it is not for the gout. Sir, returned the Marquis, it shall never be said that I forsook my friend to pleasure my enemy. The king's face grew dark, for ever since the lecture for which he had made Gower the textbook, he had been ready to see a double meaning of rebuke in all the Marquis said. He made no answer, avoided his attendants who waited for him in the fountain court, expecting him to go by the bell-tower, and, passing through the hall and the stone court, ascended to his room alone and went into the picture-gallery, where he paced up and down till supper-time. The Marquis rejoined the little company of his own friends, who had left the bowling-green after him, and were now in the oak parlour. A little troubled at the king's carriage towards him, he entered with a merrier bearing than usual. "'Well, gentlemen, how goes the bias?' he said gaily. "'We were but now presuming to say, my lord,' answered Mr. Pritchard, "'that there are who would largely warrant that if you would, you might be Duke of Somerset.' "'When I was Earl of Worcester,' returned the Marquis, "'I was well-to-do. "'Since I was Marquis, I am worse by a hundred thousand pounds. "'And if I should be a Duke, I should be an errant beggar. "'Wherefore I had rather go back to my earldom.' Then at this rate keep on my pace to the dukedom of Somerset. End of chapter forty four recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona.